Horror Story is a podcast about strange and mysterious true horrors. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, host and producer of Horror Story. In the show, I have an episode called There's a Stranger in Your Walls, and it's about a woman that moved out of her home because she thought it was being haunted. But the truth happened to be even scarier than the ghosts. Other stories dive deep into the supernatural, like the one of the most infamous cases of real ghosts, called The Haunting in San Pedro. But if you're into mysteries, learn about the pilot who disappeared in the sky. All of these and more are available on Horror Story right now, with more episodes coming out every single week. You can search for the podcast by typing in Horror Story on your podcast app right now. The show is the one with the yellow letters. I'll see you over there on Horror Story. True Scary Story is a podcast about personal, terrifying stories dealing with the paranormal. True accounts from people who live through strange and supernatural experiences, told directly by them. My name is Edwin Covarrubias, and for years I have been listening to stories from people who have shared their most frightening true experiences with me. There was one story recently called There's Something in the Closet where Juanita tells us about her experiences growing up in a house where she would see objects physically move on their own, but the rest of her family would act as if nothing was happening. It wasn't until years later that she found out what the source of it all was, which makes me wonder, if you were to witness a haunting, who would believe you? Come find True Scary Story by typing it into your app right now. I'll see you over there. On True Scary Story. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with two audio adaptations of frightening fiction about fearsome felines and arcane asylums. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of J.R. Hamantashan and the Vesper's Bell are voice talents Nick Goroff, Heather Thomas, Kyle Stroud, Steve Gray, Jeff Sturdivant, and Justin Reynolds. Now... Get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. 
Our first tale this evening is written by J.R. Hamantashen and is performed by Nick Goroff and Heather Thomas. They say it's not good practice to go to bed upset or irritated at your partner. Well, this story goes to show that it may not be the best thing to do upon waking up either. Now, without further ado, I present to you House Cats. I dreamt that I was, like, inside an old strategy game on the computer. Like, everything was from a bird's eye view, and the graphics were blurry, and yet somehow I knew I was a character in the game. And everyone was wearing armor and riding dinosaurs. Then I was aware that I was dreaming, and even thought, this is ridiculous. Dan Katz, still groggy in bed, explained to his wife Cassandra as she got dressed for the day. Hmm, she said, a few unnatural beats later. He hated when she responded with sounds rather than words. And there'd been a face, too. Something that said, Well, okay then. Hmm, yourself, Dan thought grumbly, though making sure his face stayed inconspicuous. He knew why she'd said, Hmm, like that. It was stupid of him to say he recognized something as ridiculous in his dream. Last night, they'd gotten into a fight. I don't think we're fighting, he'd said in the face of her umbrage, because he thought she was being ridiculous. Too paranoid and unrealistic about this virus going around. Cassandra had heard from her dingbat friend who had heard from some other friend who supposedly worked in the hospital industry, that the virus particles could float in the air up to five hours. So even if everyone socially distanced as they were supposed to, they could inadvertently walk into a hovering aerosolized patch of it and get infected. If that were true, he'd countered, why wasn't that more widely known? And why did the government permit people to take walks and go out as long as they socially distanced. The thrust of it all was that she didn't want them leaving the apartment at all. Sure, he thought. Be cautious. Wear masks. Greatly reduce the amount of time outside. But to never leave their modest two-bedroom apartment was too great a restriction given their five-year-old son Nathan, plus a cat and two shrill canaries. Are these what you want? Still in bed, he pet me. They're gone now. So go away. The hair stray he'd had since he found him outside his Harlem gone apartment now. seven years ago. So go away. A few months before he met Cassandra, before this domesticity in Queens. Playing with or antagonizing mittens was always an easy way to distract from or revert things back to their usual course. Though that wasn't going to work now. What tension couldn't be lessened by the barely-veiled contempt of a lazy feline tolerating a petting? Dan had originally named Mittens Colonel, but Nathan insisted on Mittens, and rather than teach Nathan that you can't change something's name by fiat, Nathan's fascist approach was tolerated on account of his age. Dan had rescued Mittens just before he met his future wife who happened to be the prideful owner of two beloved canaries. An orange, creamsicle-colored bird aptly named Crema, 
the other a yellow one with a mottled black face named Brio, short for Brio Solar, Spanish for sunset. Cassandra's grandmother in Puerto Rico loved canaries, and something, 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 and Cassandra had to keep the family tradition alive. And given his surname, Dan joked, how could he not own at least one cat? So now, their combined household consisted of Dan, Cassandra, and Mittens, sharing a bedroom, Nathan in the other bedroom with the two birds. Nathan was getting a raw deal, but his wife insisted. That whole superstition of cats and sleeping children never having been modified on account of Nathan's advancing age. Dan didn't really mind. Let him enjoy the comfort of Colonel as his one selfish thing. The fight had been stupid anyway, because there wasn't much Dan could do about anything. He worked as a butcher at the International Meat Market, not exactly a job that could be done remotely. And now he was the sole breadwinner. His wife laid off from her office manager job almost immediately after the crisis began six or so weeks ago. And no unemployment checks had yet arrived. We're still being processed. Thank God, he reflected, that he hadn't mentioned during last night's fight that her dingbat friend was unemployed. That had draw protest, open fresh wounds, Although the relevant distinction, being that Cassandra was freshly unemployed on account of this pandemic, whereas said dingbat friend was forever unemployed. He should have known better than quarreling with her before bed. Stupid of him, given how both of them struggled with their sleep to begin with, and also should have taken into account the tenor of her mood. She was unemployed and scared. Ashamed of having to apply for unemployment, had been unwittingly converted into an unpaid homeschool teacher for their son Nathan. All her recent scouring for a bigger apartment in a nicer neighborhood like Forest Hills or Cute Gardens, now for naught until this pandemic lifted. With a new diktat against the harmless midday stroll, he'd be housebound today, this fine spring Sunday, and tomorrow too which were always his two scheduled days off. Rather than usually pushing Mittens to get him to hop around and fight, he rubbed the cat under the neck. Those housebound strays got to stick together. The only salvation lay with Nathan. Perhaps Nathan could wheedle a compromise out of Cassandra. Perhaps, Dan thought, he could conspire with the boy, get him to say what needed to be said to get Mommy to reconsider. But with these close quarters, such a ploy was too risky. Could he trust him to play it cool? He could imagine it now, telling Nathan to innocently ask Mommy if they could please, please just go out for a short walk. Then Nathan turning toward him to see if he'd said it right, already smiling with anticipation. Not a chance. After that, they'd have to add a doghouse to their menagerie so Dan could have a place to sleep. The prospect of the day weighed on him. Dan felt lonely in a way he couldn't describe. Lonely in an abnormal, shameful way. But how can you feel lonely when you have a feisty five-year-old boy who just wants to play, he thought, conjuring society's expected response. All his free time indoors with his son should be joyous. And it was, 
in the abstract, or would be upon reflection in some future date where memories were rosy up. What was it? Why was it that work at the butcher shop came easier than staying at home with his family? It was the burden of responsibility, wasn't it? Here he was looked at as the go-to, the formulator, the overseer and executor of plans. Let Cassandra roll her eyes at that. It was true. At work, it was enjoyable physical labor and fucking around with the staff. Here, the two people and three animals depended upon him. He cooked up eggs and bacon for the family. Cassandra seemingly haven't gotten over last night's unpleasantness. Hopefully exercised through her testy hmm. Now running Nathan through some chores, helping her feed the birds and give them fresh water, and finding some videos about farms to play on television for Nathan as a reward for his good work. Daddy works with chickens, Nathan said as chickens filled the television screen in the living room. Yes, Daddy does, Dan said. Cassandra looked back at him, smiled, glad he didn't go further. There'd be a lot to explain to him Sunday, what Daddy did exactly with those animals at work. That conversation had another about what these colorful pictures along Daddy's arms meant, which could be a fun opportunity for Dan to come up with meaningful explanations other than it looked cool or I liked that band. You know, Mommy worked in an office that dealt with teeth, Dan said while shimmying the frying pan. Teeth are real important, right? That's pretty cool, right? Nathan nodded dutifully. Not as fucking cool as working with barnyard animals, Dan quietly agreed. Mittens ran into the kitchen. I'll make a place for you, too. Don't worry, you fat cat, Dan said. Hopefully loud enough for Nathan to hear and giggle, but apparently not. The boy focused on his chickens and cows on the screen. Dan tossed the cat a tiny bit of bacon and the muse bush. Mittens didn't give it a second glance. He was at the window that led to the fire escape and the strange quasi-pathway that connected the two buildings, the purpose of which Dan could not really figure out, other than it allowed past building workers a place to loiter and smoke, if the dozens of crushed cigarettes under the fire escape were any indication. At the window were about three other fine-looking cats, two short hairs and a Maine coon. Mittens hopped up to the landing and stared out at them. Invited some friends over, huh? Dan was surprised Mittens came over to the window, rather than maybe hissing and backing away or just plain running away into the bedroom. Mittens was a different, generally fearful little beast and basically rolled over and allowed himself to be scooped up and claimed as Dan's house cat. He never would have survived long as a street cat. The window was open to allow a breeze and Mittens pawed at the window screen. Not really pawed, more like slowly stroked his paw against the screen, more like, Dan thought strangely, how an intimate and loved one would caress their hand across the glass that divided them during a prison visitation. Hey, don't do that. And Dan lifted and dropped him off the landing. The three cats all looked at Dan, while another was coming down the fire escape. 
We got a crazy cat lady a few floors up missing cats. Dan asked rhetorically as he brought over a plate for his wife and son at the couch. There wasn't room at the couch or a nearby coffee table for him to comfortably join them, so he sat at the dining table and made himself some room. That blue marble table had been their one and only nice possession pre-parenthood. Now one chair occupied completely with his family's jackets and effluvia. The tabletop, or at least the part of it not covered in paper towel rolls and kid stuff, was well scratched and banged up from the kid and cat having their run of the place. Cats! His son yelped a bit shrilly, giving Dan an unpleasant flashback of teachers about to reprimand him for fucking about in class. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Nathan came over, his mom urging him to stay and finish the breakfast that daddy worked so hard to make. That's right, son. With our name, you can become ruler of the cats if the benefit of our name. And Dan waved his hands around like a sorcerer. Glad there's some benefit to this name. <laughs> Cassandra said, smiling and laughing. A true take-that-laugh as Dan turned to her in mock shock. Thanks to you, my name is Cass Katz. Try it sometime, Nathan. You'll see, Dan said, still making sorcerer hands. Cassandra joined him, demonstrating a truncated version of the pageantry quick and dirty to get Nathan back to his breakfast. Mittens went back up to the window. There were, what were there now, five or six cats out there. Mittens batted against the screen. Colonel, stop that. Dan stormed to the window, projecting an anger he didn't really feel to scare off his colonel from the window. Always forgetting that he was dealing with a cat, who either didn't notice who didn't give two shits about emotional cues. His name's Mittens, he heard Nathan call from the couch. Dan didn't want Cassandra to notice Mittens was pawing the screen, lest she order Dan to close the window. He needed fresh air. If he shut this window, there'd only have one open window, the one facing the street in the living room. Just as Nathan approached, the legion of cats outside pawed viciously at the screen. The cat in the lead, an orange Maine Coon spit and hissed ferociously, his nails between the holes in the screen pulling and flailing, with the almost frenzied panic of a man who just caught his penis in his zipper, or perhaps more seriously, someone trying to 
wrench his arm out of the mouth of a ravenous dog. Jesus, Dan said, surprised at his own reaction. What's going on over there? Cassandra said loudly, lifting Nathan and placing him back on the couch as the boy struggled to see what was going on, getting pissy in his frustration. These cats might rip our screen. Honey, I think I should spray them with the sink hose. Whatever gets them out of here. Dan did so, putting the water first on that diffuse spritz mode, and embarrassed at how ineffectual that was. Put it on stream mode, which wasn't much better. The cats meowed sharply and backed up slightly, and Dan spread the water around to the group to make sure this wasn't just one cat getting all soaked. This wasn't supposed to be a fucking cat bath. Didn't cats generally not like getting water sprayed on them? Even Mittens, close by on the counter, didn't budge. Fuck it. Dan went to close the window. Shit. These fucking cats ripped the screen. Fuck. These were custom screens. Like 150 bucks. And a ripped screen was as good as worthless. Get the... Get out of the way. He grumbled. The cats still snaking their paws through the screen to widen the hole. Dan didn't want to crush any of their little hands under the window, so he smacked the screen hard to at least get them to withdraw their hands as he pushed the window down. He grunted in lieu of blurting, fuck. His right hand was bleeding along the top of the palm and the three central fingers. It didn't really hurt. But it was bloodier than he'd imagined. Must have been some combination of getting scratched and pinched in the window. He looked out at the furry contingent to see if any one of them looked particularly guilty, or, he didn't know, perhaps remorseful. But they all just stared, with their wide variety of expressive cat eye colors. Look at that white cat with the blue eyes. Wow. Never seen that before, he said to his wife, who walked over with a bandage. He turned and saw that Nathan was still on the couch. He expressed wonderment for Nathan's behalf, thinking he'd come along with Cassandra, as if he cared about a blue-eyed cat now. Oh, honey, Cassandra said, wrapping the bandage around his hand. Alleviating pains and scratches was her secret calling. I thought you were supposed to be a guard cat. She said to Mittens, while smiling back at Nathan. I thought that's why you were a colonel. Mittens, stripped of his military title, gave the same ponderous, inscrutable stare back as the outside cats. When either Dan or Cassandra was sad or upset, the other adopted a we-can-do-it corny joke overcompensating cheerfulness, part of the steadying emotional seesaw of domesticity. Dan heard the birds chirping from the bedroom. He could identify their separate trilling. Brio, the more active and robust of the two. I wonder if that's why these cats decided to join us on this fine spring day. Because of our birds, said Cassandra. The fine spring day part was said to Nathan. Well, that chance for them. These cats aren't coming in. Yeah, those are our birds, agreed Nathan. They've never come around before, though, Dan said vacantly. The cat still stared in. Now there were even more of them, and it was a fine spring day. 
and none of them seemed too perturbed about having been doused, as if they knew they'd dry. Dan found himself weirdly jealous of the cats, outside, free to roam and explore. Oh well, the cats didn't look as impressive all wet, so at least he'd scored an aesthetic victory. What do you think we should do? Call the management company or something? Cassandra asked. Animal control? I guess. I mean, is animal control even open anymore? Only essential services are still open. I don't know. I guess I could try, but who the hell knows when they'll get here? Cassandra looked at him sternly. Hell being one of those borderline words. Sometimes okay to say around Nathan. Sometimes not. Ironic, since... Although Dan cursed more, his cursing was harmless, evocative words to fill out or give comedic emphasis to a sentence. When Cassandra cursed, it was scary. It meant she wanted someone dead. We can call the police if they don't show up. Cassandra answered. Cassandra looked with disgust at the assembled animals, and then admittance. She never really liked free-ranging house pets. They never seemed to serve any purpose. Stunk up the place and acted like they owned it. Birds were at least beautiful to look at and listen to. And watching their gift of flight, even when only allowed in the bedroom, was still a wondrous thing. What did this fat fuck cat do other than poop and sleep? He'd never even caught a mouse. If anything, the mice would catch him. Nathan loved him. Dan did too, which granted the beast his clemency. Dan didn't imagine that calling the police would do much, given all they must be dealing with. What would he say, exactly? Sorry, officers. Forget about the looting going on during quarantine and those dead bodies, too. We have a cat problem here. I'll call animal control. You can go take care of Nathan for a bit, Dan decided. And Cassandra was on it. Congratulating Nathan for being such a good boy and staying put near the couch. Dan estimated how many cats were out there. Must be about fifteen right near the window. Who knows if there were others walking about the landing. The lower half of the screen was effectively torn to ribbons. But even the sharpest cat claws weren't going to do anything about the glass. Having dialed animal control, Dan walked over to the window to get Mittens to come back to the couch, as if the cats were a bad influence. The cats, on the literal wrong side of the window. Come on, Kurt! Pandemonium. Some fifteen hairy crabs crawling over each other just outside the window. Fuck! And one inside. Mittens. It was the cats. Dan dropped his phone. Convinced for a split second, Mittens was having some kind of seizure. Like the cats outside, Mittens was belly up, crab walking, with oblivious abandon. He scuttled across the counter, tail dragging beneath him. Spices and chips and utensils either crushed or fell off the counter in his wake. His eyes were open, but unresponsive. Inscrutable, as always, but... Worse was his open, gaping, drooling mouth, which on his back appeared like an inverted ecstatic smile. Colonel! Dan dropped the phone and grabbed for his cat, 
now rising atop and over the microwave, anticipating the unaware teeth and claws that may descend upon his hand when he woke Mittens from his stupor. Mittens' affliction, Dan saw out of the corner of his eyes, was shared equally by the cats outside. Now one contorting mound, all bent backward and upside down, the same horrifying discrepancy between their blank eyes and their wet, joyous mouths, some gate mouth, others nibbling at phantoms. The cats outside were throwing themselves face first into the glass. The sound of the first impact, hard enough to leave blood, almost made Mittens slip out of his hands. The smeared blood didn't stop the next cat, or the next, and the cheap window was already beginning to crack. Mittens was a flailing insect in his arms, a furry sack with possessed limbs, and Dan almost cried. His cat must be dying. How could he have done that with his spine? And then, with a twist, quicker than it takes to blink, Mittens snapped out of it, back to looking around the room in his usual feline resignation, as if there was nothing he could do about being hoisted into the air, so he might as well tolerate it. Dan, what is going on out there? Cassandra asked, keeping her voice steady, having obviously waited to voice this question. She kept Nathan close behind her, the boy wiping his face silently, clearly frightened. But Dan could see in her eyes that she saw, and that she knew as well as he. She had her phone in hand, and any notion she may have had about entertaining Nathan with the antics of those funny dancing cats outside died almost as soon as it had formed. Dan babbled. I think these cats... A soft thud came from outside the living room window. Then a dimmer fuller-sounding impact seconds later. Another. Then another. As if someone was dropping sandbags outside the living room window. Dan, now furious, as if in a mood to yell at some punk kids, dropped mittens to the ground, stormed past his family, and, it being a small apartment, crossed the distance to the living room window in a matter of seconds. His instincts had already prepared him what greeted him, but his mind was still several beats behind, still rationalizing, even now as he looked outside at what greeted him. Their apartment was on the third floor, and he saw about four dead cats splayed on their side down the pavement. Dan instinctively darted his head as a brown house cat leaping from a point unknown smashed face first into the ledge outside the window whipsawed its arms to try and gain purchase, failed, and plummeted down to join his brethren. Dan shook his head, as if willing the images to disappear, to reorder the sequence of events he'd just witnessed so as to unmask meaning. This was the first time he'd looked outside onto the street all day. Dozens of cats walked the street below, and a few dogs, too, although the two species seemed to be operating without regard for the other. Just now, a gaggle of cats froze, and some moved out of the way as a German shepherd sprinted down the street and turned the corner. 
No human was chasing him. No crying little kid upset about his beloved dog that just broken free. Across the street, two dozen cats were piling into a storefront that Dan knew had been closed for at least a week as a result of this quarantine. We need to call the police, okay? And, honey, why don't you take Nathan into our room and close the door and first throw out any food you didn't eat in case that's what these cats wanted. And you guys can watch whatever you want on the iPad. How's that sound? Cassandra nodded. And how about you text me once you get situated in there? And we can talk through the door, okay? I have to do something really quick, okay? Dan was adding exclamation with his face, eyeing the pans and knives he could use as weapons and shields. Oh, okay, go, go, okay. He placed his hand on Cassandra's back, as if guiding her into action. You two have fun in our room, okay? You can call from our room, right? And call the police? Go into the room. I'll get the leftovers later, okay? He just remembered his phone was still on the ground somewhere in the kitchen. Cassandra hurried Nathan into their bedroom and closed the door. Dan gathered his phone on the floor, grabbed a steel frying pan, and then took two oven mitts and put them on in case the cats tried to bite or scratch him. Noted the soft spot he could wear as a helmet, though that could be a step too far and do more harm than good. He was failing. He knew. Be responsible, he commanded himself, because he wasn't tracking the most important development, which was the integrity of the window. That's where all attention should be paid. The living room window posed no threat, as no cat could even gain purchase there. What was the point of leaping by the living room window, he wondered, although asking why was a stupid question. They were cats, solitary and individualistic by nature. Who knows why they did what they did? A diversionary tactic? He thought ironically, an unfunny joke to himself. Oh, God. There were so many of them outside the kitchen window, and this kitchen window wasn't going to hold. It really wasn't going to hold. It actually wasn't going to hold. An incredible, horrifying realization that he wasn't prepared to accept. He reinforced the glass by pushing a large pot against it. Then thought to boil water. He could launch that at the cats before they got in. No. That would take too long and pose its own hazards if, God forbid, cats got in and knocked the little water pot over. He started boiling water anyway. Could be something. The knockout punch. The secret weapon, like they did in medieval siege defense. Mittens stood atop the microwave, as if silently judging Dan's performance. Dan pushed against the splintered glass as the cats, who must have numbered about fifty now, stampeded and thrashed against the window. Dan. He heard Cassandra behind him, hushed but urgent, as if there was still some pretense in hiding what was happening from Nathan. The cats broke the bedroom window and started coming in. Only about one or two came in before we left. She whispered. Fucking hell. The bedroom window and the bathroom window, too, all faced the same ledge. 
The bathroom window was tiny and didn't even have a screen. While he hadn't heard anything, he wouldn't be surprised if there were cats mulling around the bathroom right now. <sighs> Cassandra put her hands to her mouth to stifle her emotions at seeing the amassed army outside their kitchen window. Did you get a hold of the police? I got disconnected the first two times, and now I'm on hold. This pandemic. I wouldn't be surprised if there's no one at the precinct. Dan knew the kitchen window was a lost cause. Still, he wanted to insist that she help reinforce it or ready another pot of boiling water or do something. Just so the eminent failure couldn't be laid solely at his feet. But no. Go into the other room. The window in there didn't face the ledge. He didn't think. It was on the other side of the room. Actually, he wasn't sure of that. The window in Nathan's room did face the same ledge, didn't it? How could that bedroom not have the same layout? So, that was a bad idea. Plus, what would the plan be? Be stuck in a room with two screaming birds in a house overrun with feral cats that could potentially slip under the door? Actually, he lifted an arm to stop her movement. Go right next door to Enid and Jean's. You two need to get out of here. They had two sons, including Will, Nathan's friend who was the same age. Okay. And he could see Cassandra thinking. Likely the same thing he was. But the neighbors had two young kids and were always wearing masks and wouldn't want visitors. Because who knows who was contaminated with what these days. The neighbor on the other side was a single guy they'd never spoken to. And who else did they know? There were a lot of old people. A lesbian couple. They could be a good bet. No kids. Or... That's it. Dan thought. Murray and his elderly mother who had that big black dog that would put the fear of God into any feline. Cassandra yelled at the cats. Mittens included. As if on cue became transfixed in their fervent crab walk. Although the almost reverent silence that accompanied that previous transformation was replaced with hissing, spitting, and mewling. Mittens fell off the counter, a rolling tangle of limbs. Glass splintered, the squirming mass outside like a collection of screeching, hairy, multicolored pustules. One cat, being oppressed the glass was, based on the angle of his neck, clearly dead. But the army outside didn't care. Just more weight for the siege. Get out of here. Go to Murray if Enid and Jean aren't home. Get out now. I don't want you to see this. And Dan grabbed the pot of boiling water. Cassandra grabbed Nathan and ran out of the apartment, wishing she'd thought to grab face masks from the nightstand in their bedroom, but there wasn't time. I love you. She squawked as she closed the door. She hadn't yelled it in panic, she realized, as if trying to blunt her fear. Yelled it more as she was just in a rush. Something pedestrian, like running late for work. Dan knew what he had to do, but he couldn't. He couldn't just heave scalding water on this sea of cats, with mittens right in the zone of the splashback. He couldn't do it. He couldn't. So he dissociated completely. Just swung the pot forward and spilled forth its contents without 
allowing himself to connect his actions with the screams that followed or the smell that singed his nostrils. Small, empty pot in his left hand, he steadied the frying pan with his right, still finding it inconceivable he would ever need to use it. Cassandra looked up and back at her front door, could swear she heard clanging, screeching. Why weren't Enid and Jean answering? Were they barricaded inside? So terrified of contagion? Just a few feet away behind this door, silencing their children until the knocking went away? No, they wouldn't do that. For all she knew, they'd left the city until the pandemic blew over. She would have done the same if they had somewhere to go. Will! Will's parents! Let us in! Nathan cried. Hearing Nathan's pleas to be let in was too much for her. So she took his hand and brought him down the hall, telling him that Will and his family must be visiting friends upstate. Up in the Catskills, where they'd taken Nathan last summer to run around. And that's where they'd go again when this was all over. Are there a lot of cats in the Catskills? No, no cats there. It's just a name. Like our last name. Nothing to do with cats. Just a big coincidence. Something glass-sounding shattered inside an apartment on the opposite side of the hall. Cassandra was unable to breathe for a moment. Heart pounding too hard to regain composure. She just wanted to go back inside their apartment. Surely it must be under control now? They were just house cats, for Christ's sakes. Just go to Murray's, midway down the hall. They'd only spoken to Murray a few times, but he seemed trustworthy. He was always at home, caring for his bedridden mother. Just leave Nathan inside with him until things got under control in their apartment. She could picture it now. Nathan, sitting alone safely in a room of Murray's apartment. Murray's big, bushy mountain of a dog, grazing by the door, making sure no unwanted guests got in. Tension brewed in her stomach as she prematurely imagined Murray sputtering out reasons why they couldn't come in. His sick mother and this pandemic being especially fatal for the elderly. And as that happened, she'd have to tell him that this was truly and unequivocally an emergency. She knocked, diplomatically but firmly. No answer. And Nathan's crying began anew viewing some pattern of doom laid out behind his eyes. It's okay, honey. And she knocked again, pushing the door to test if it was open. The door was unlocked, and she continued her knocking, pretending to fall forward slightly for an audience of no one as a pretext as to why she opened the door. The light was off by the door, but lights were on down the hall in the living room. Cassandra tentatively led the way down the hall, making sure her son stayed just behind. Hey, Murray? It's Cassandra with Nathan, down the hall. I hope you're doing well. This will sound... They were three quarters of the way down the hall, and something slinky and agile darted from an unseen corner, losing its balance and slipping just as it made its way down the hall. A cat time to leave. An engine was revving. A foot protruded 
from the living room, the source of the engine. And the engine fired up as the foot jerked spasmodically. Let's go to the nice couple down the hall, okay, Nathan? Cassandra spoke as placidly as she could. The engine revealed itself to be growling, and she could see Murray's monster of a dog tugging and twisting. Jaws, vice-like upon and fully obscuring what was left of his owner's face. There was a scarlet sheen at the end of the hallway where the cat had slipped. Come on now. Let's be very quiet. The doggy is sleeping, she said as she pushed Nathan back to the door. As Cassandra and her son headed back toward the front door, Cassandra passed an open room and saw it must have been Murray's mother, flat on her back in bed, body swathed under blankets, one cat atop her head swatting at her face, another by her body and swatting in the air, as if determining whether the corpse before them was just a giant, supine rat playing possum. Near the front door, and the growling stopped. Then, a cannon of a bark. And there the dog, muzzle covered in gore, standing behind them at the opening to the living room, beside Murray's dragged corpse, the face so consumed that the remaining structure collapsed into itself. Run back to Daddy, okay? I'll be right behind you, okay? And Cassandra underhandedly pushed her son toward the door. She was about ten feet away from the door. The dog maybe tripled out behind them. Think. Should she make a run for it? Push Nathan through the door and slam it before the dog ran forward? Or keep the dog calm until she was sure Nathan had made it through and gotten back home? Her life came down to a decision she wasn't prepared to make. A decision that could be wrested out of her hands in a second. It's okay. Good boy. It's okay. Good boy. Cassandra soothed, hands open-palmed. Dan was good with dogs. Why couldn't she be with Dan? Why couldn't they just be inside, at home, on Dan's day off? Tears welled, the arc of her life up to this point, cascading over her panicked mind with impressionistic detail. No. Focus. She turned to see if Nathan had gotten through the door, and he was still there, looking at her, terrified and babbling. And of course, he couldn't leave Mommy. Nathan, go... go back to Daddy, okay? I'll join you so soon, so soon, baby. I'm just... just go. I'll be there in one second. The doggy is okay. Please, Nathan, please... You're so close. Just slip through the door. Go. Go. She whispered and gestured. She could run and make it. Then she studied the animal again and her heart sank. The dog was colossal. Its flexed body alone looked like it would have the distance. A thrust of those powerful legs and the dog would be upon her she could only just eke her way over, push Nathan through the door. Maybe she could move and the dog wouldn't mind. He already had his chew toy, she thought grimly. The dog, she didn't even know its name, gawped dumbly. She looked to see if its tail was wagging. 
some insight into the dog's mood. Its tail was an immobile corkscrew. As if launched, the animal galloped toward her in full stride, not even granting her the dignity of a warning bark. Cassandra sprinted toward the open door. The last terrifying thought as she turned to run was that the dog had already covered the distance, was up in the air, open wet jaws descending upon her shoulder, that she was bound to be another fleshy morsel for this monstrous thing intent on crushing and rendering all in its path to be dragged backward, grasping in vain to close the door beyond her reach to save her son until crunch irreparably severed meaning between her thoughts and actions. Dan was in Nathan's room, and the two birds were strangely blasé about the cats pounding, scratching, slipping claws, and trying to wedge themselves underneath the door. Dan had killed or maimed several, bashed their heads and limbs with his frying pan, lost the water pot, and removed the gloves, but kept fighting until the numbers became overwhelming and he had to seek refuge behind the locked door. Cats weren't roaches, or rats. How many could there be? And why here? Why all now? Colonel had joined the stampede, the traitor, and that desertment had freed Dan to unleash, do the things he needed to do, although he was sure if he saw Colonel again, he wouldn't have the heart to hurt a hair on his head. In his exhausted delirium, he imagined Colonel telling his new friends about the indignity he suffered at being stripped of the name Colonel for the emasculating embarrassment that was Mittens. The only woes me war story that spoiled animal could conceivably have since Dan had taken him in. He'd been so good to that animal. His first proto-child yet so quickly abandoned. He looked around the room, at Nathan's toys, books, his Legos, his collection of toy taxicabs and subway trains and farm sets with the plastic farmers and animals still out, an insight into what Nathan had been doing last night, the kind of deleted scene that Dan recreated in his head, eyes wet with tears. Concentrate. He still had his frying pan, its underside caked red. But were there other weapons in here? No. What weapons would there be in his child's room? The windows were on the opposite side of the room from the ledge. He'd been wrong. They should have run in here immediately. He fucked up. He couldn't believe it. He'd fucked up. One of those tiny oversights with those obvious ramifications. Fucking stupid. His fucking stupidity could have now cost them everything. No. That can't be. It will be fine. His family was safe somewhere. He wanted to call, but shouldn't in case they were keeping quiet. So he texted Cassandra said he was safely inside of Nathan's room, asked his wife to confirm where they were and that they were okay. His eyes stayed glued to the phone. The gap between the floor and the door seemed larger in this room, 
and he smashed every questing paw on the more ambitious faces that tried to twist themselves under. A cessation of movement, and then the abrupt, powerfully singular shift in momentum outside the door that left no doubt when they were crab-walking as one. That frightening possession, all-consuming, each time a fresh, simmering agony writhing his guts. The reassuring mental defenses he built up came tumbling, as if each time he was freshly reminded of this strange, esoteric hell that lay before him. Think. Think. There had to be something. Something he was overlooking. The pandemic would kill off the cats. No. No. The pandemic caused all this. Maybe. But not important. He checked his phone again. No response. He couldn't stand this. Where was she? He would have to call, hear his wife and child, make sure they are situated. The birds. Was it the birds they really wanted? No. This seemed too severe for two birds. But what else could it be? His wife would kill him for what he was about to do, but she would have to understand these circumstances. How comforting it was to think of his wife reprimanding him on some future date. He could imagine it clearly. All this, and you just had to go ahead and throw my birds out there? Like things weren't bad enough? You know how long? And he smiled. Ruddy face. As if this imagined scenario was as pivotal and monumentous a day as the day of his wedding or the birth of his child. Are these what you want? He yelled, tilting the cage slightly. He opened the windows and screens, made a nest of his hands and lifted each bird to the window to take flight. Godspeed, little guys, he thought as they flapped up and away. They could eat seeds, drink rainwater, be free, or someone else would find them, give them a good home. They're gone now, so go away, he yelled to the persistent scratching burrowing at the bottom of the wooden door. There wasn't really any heavy furniture in the room. He pushed this old bookcase against the door and then the single cabinet that housed some of Nathan's clothes and the birdcage, for good measure. Why hadn't he thought of this sooner, stupid? But these were flimsy. The furniture, cheap Ikea garbage. But still, they were only cats. Only cats. Still, only cats. He heard heaving growling outside the front door to the apartment, which must have been loud if he could hear it still so clearly, naturally muted by both the front door and Nathan's door. He felt the jerky back and forth of something like a big dog slamming around like a rag doll. Good boy. Good boy. Get those fucking cats. Bite their fucking heads off, Dan pleaded. Get them. Tear them limb from limb and save room in your stomach for more. Dogs didn't eat cats, though, did they? Just fought them. 
Fine. Tear them up. Be a cold-blooded killer. Tear them up remorselessly and then go on to the next one. He couldn't tolerate the radio silence from his wife. So he called Cassandra. The phone rang five times. Went to voicemail. Where the fuck was she? She was always so bad at picking up, but even now, now of all times, they must still be explaining things in an apartment somewhere, staying quiet somewhere, or right now with the police, which could explain the missed call. She'd call back any second. Dan strained to think as the burrowing and splintering continued. That last possession did a number on the door. All those demented teeth and nails against the wood. All those bodies throwing themselves en masse. Hard enough even that the bookcase and armoire rumbled, as if caught in an aftershock. Think. Think. His name. Did his name have anything to do with this? Cats. <laughs> Could these cats read? And if they did... Would it be in English? Huh. What else could it be? Why them? Why any of us? Why all the cats in the street? Why didn't they care about the birds? Think. Think. His hope lay with the dog outside, viciously mauling and tossing something around just outside their door. Get those cats. Get them. Rip their fucking heads off. I hope you enjoyed House Cats, as written by J.R. Hermantashen, and is brought to us by Velox Books, and performed by Nick Goroff and Heather Thomas. Acclaimed throughout the underground horror world, J.R. Hamantashen's stories pushed the boundaries and refused to conform to the usual conventions. A mix of nihilism, cosmic horror, and weird fiction, this collection is a must-read for anyone who craves the dark and disturbing. Following in the footsteps of H.P. Lovecraft, Thomas Ligotti, T.E.D. Klein, and Dennis Etchison, Hamantashen masterfully weaves tales of horror that articulate what we've always suspected, that life is a losing proposition. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of cause. Finally, you can hear more of Heather Thomas over at the Creepy Podcast at www.creepypod.com. Our second tale of the evening is written by the Vespers Bell and is performed by Nick Goroff, Kyle Stroud, Steve Gray, Jeff Sturdivant, and Justin Reynolds. In it, a former soldier receives a late-night call asking him to come take care of an experiment gone wrong at the local asylum. What he finds will test his conscience as much as his courage.
So without any further ado, I present to you, From Madness Born. The rain was already coming down hard when Oliver Mason had gotten the call. His presence was required immediately at Avalon Asylum. He was at first quite bewildered by this, since Oliver Mason was not a doctor, but the proprietor of a men's clothing store. When he began to object, the voice on the other end cut him off and informed him that his presence had been requested by the asylum's principal donors, Crow, Crowley, and Chamberlain. Oliver instantly fell silent at the mention of his patrons, as he referred to them in polite company. He briefly considered using the late hour or weather as an excuse, but before he could even speak, the voice on the other end once again cut him off, telling him that he was expected before unceremoniously hanging up. Oliver sighed as he placed his own receiver in its cradle, but wasted no time in letting his wife and daughter know that the boys at the finance firm needed him to drive into Sombramori so that he could take their measurements and place their order first thing in the morning. Given their usual hospitality, he might be a while. They each gave him a kiss on the cheek goodbye, his wife quietly reminding him that she really wouldn't mind him moving his mistress into town if it meant him having fewer late-night business calls. He insisted it was actually for business, though she seemed as unconvinced as ever, and told him to drive safe. It wasn't even a half-hour's drive into Sombermori, and it was one that Oliver had made often enough, but he still resented having to make it at night and in all the rain just because some pompous plutocrat he owed a favor to decided had some pressing need of him. And in a madhouse of all places. Avalon Asylum was over a hundred years old. Its weather-stained and ivy-covered exterior walking a fine line between quaint and condemned. Though the hour was still early, none of its many windows gave off any light at all, and any rational person could have been forgiven for assuming that it was utterly abandoned. Oliver didn't know what kind of lunatics the asylum actually claimed to treat, but he had an easy suspicion that tonight was the night he would find out. The asylum itself was situated in the middle of the Avalon River that ran through the city. It had been built on a small island to create an illusion of security, but it was far from Alcatraz. Any escaping lunatic who could swim would be able to cross the river easily enough. And if they couldn't swim... Or just didn't feel like getting wet. Freedom was just a short walk over the poorly guarded bridge. The gate attendant had waved Oliver through without even asking for ID. He parked as close to the main entryway as he could, but made no rush to get out of the rain. 
His fedora and trench coat offered more than adequate protection from the elements, and he was not eager to learn what nightmarish things awaited him inside the madhouse. Ah, Mr. Mason. Welcome, welcome. So glad you were able to join us on such short notice. Seneca Chamberlain greeted him as he stepped into the asylum's candlelit visitor's parlor. Chamberlain, as always, wore an ornate three-piece suit, top hat, and an insufferably smug smile. My apologies for the poor lighting. It's, well, uh, it's related to the situation at hand, you see. Just hand your coat and hat to Mr. Woodbead there and have a seat. You know Mr. Crowley, of course. But I don't believe you've had the pleasure of Master Erasmus Crow. Erasmus Crow, like every other member of the Crow family that Oliver had met, had white hair, pale skin with an odd tinge of silver to it, and vivid blue-green eyes. What happened to, uh... Eratosthenes, Oliver asked, disinterestedly, as he handed off his wet outerwear to Chamberlain's butler. Crossed the river Styx, I'm afraid. The Crow family has never been as adept as Seneca and I at cheating the dread Persephone. Crowley mocked, his monotone voice booming through a gramophone horn. Crowley had cheated Persephone by binding his soul to his brain preserving his brain in a bubbling vat of alchemical elixirs and mounting said vat upon a telekinetically operated clockwork pedestal, as one does. Well, let's give credit where credit is due, Crowley. The crows are good for dealing with more mundane clientele, since we can't exactly pass you off as just having a rare skin condition, Seneca remarked, gesturing for would-be to offer Oliver a cigar. With all due respect, I didn't drive all this way at night and in the rain just to listen to you three hens exchange petty insults. Oliver said as he deliberately shunned the proffered stogies in favor of his own satin stag cigarettes. Why am I here, boys? That's a good question, Erasmus said, as he impertinently snatched one of Oliver's cigarettes for himself. How's a haberdasher supposed to help us out here? Because before he was a haberdasher, Mr. Mason here was a soldier, Seneca replied. More importantly, he was a soldier who fought against enemies he's not permitted to talk about in polite company. He helped liberate the Hexenlock concentration camp at the end of the war. Shot a Nazi warlock while he was at it, too. Oliver, tell Master Erasmus about how you shot a Nazi warlock. Oliver took a drag from his cigarette before listlessly turning his head towards Erasmus. I shot a Nazi warlock, he said apathetically. It's a good thing everything you did across the pond is classified, because you're rubbish at telling more stories. Chamberlain rolled his eyes. Anyway, when Mr. Mason returned, we gave him the loan he needed to get his business up and running. And I personally arranged for a little unseely assistance when he and his wife were having trouble conceiving, because I knew this was a man I wanted in my debt. I presume you've brought your sidearm, Mr. Mason? Oliver nodded slowly and pulled out his gun from his suit jacket. 
It was a custom-made revolver that held seven bullets, forged from a marbled black metal that was unusually cold to the touch. Oliver didn't know what the metal was or who had made the gun, only that it was able to kill things that claimed to be unkillable. Yes, that's the one. Chamberlain smiled. And you have it loaded with the proper ammunition, I trust. Oliver opened the gun cylinder and pulled out a silver bullet etched with calligraphic runes around its circumference. Excellent. That ought to do the trick. Do the trick against what? Oliver asked, unable to suppress his irritation as he reloaded and holstered his gun. Well, you see, the thing is, it's sort of a... Some might call it a... Crowley? It's nothing you can't handle, my boy. Crowley assured him. You're serious? You're just going to point me in the right direction and tell me to shoot first and ask questions later? Oliver asked in disgust. Crowley and Chamberlain both turned towards Crow, as he was the junior-most partner, and as such, onerous duties of this sort fell upon him. It's... Mad. Erasmus said at last. The patients we take in here, the kind of lunatics people just want to get rid of. They're outcasts. No one gives a damn what we do with them. So we do with them as we damn well please. Crowley, in particular, comes up with all sorts of occult experiments. And one of his experiments is now loose. Not loose exactly. It's still in its ward, which we've evacuated and sealed off. This situation isn't completely out of hand, Seneca insisted. Then why is the electricity out? Oliver asked. We never said the electricity was out, Erasmus replied. Electric light seems to provoke it, so they're off for the time being. Candlelight doesn't seem to bother it as much, though, so we can at least give you a lantern. Erasmus passed him a cast-iron kerosene lantern that looked like it had been there since the asylum first opened. But... Oliver made no move to take it. What kind of danger am I in? He demanded. None, if you shoot it in the head before it has a chance to retaliate. Seneca replied. It has to be the head, Oliver asked. Well, that's technically all that's left of it, Crowley admitted. Anything else you see in there is purely affectation. I'll keep that in mind, Oliver said as he put out his cigarette. Which way is it then? Woodbead will show you to the ward, Chamberlain said with a nod to his butler. Oliver gave a purely perfunctory nod in return as he rose from his seat. With his gun in one hand and the lantern in the other, he followed Woodbead through the dark and deathly quiet hallways until they reached a wide set of doors labeled Experimental Ward, Authorized Personnel Only. Woodbead slid open a metal viewing port and cautiously checked the inside of the ward. The entry is clear, he reported as he pulled out his keys and opened the doors just wide enough for Oliver to slip through, abruptly slamming them shut as soon as he was on the other side. He remained just outside, though, peering through the glass, vigilantly watching to ensure that Oliver didn't try to leave until after his task was finished. The antiquated lantern did little to illuminate the abysmal ward. Beds and other furnishings had been thrown about, light bulbs had been shattered, and banks of industrial-sized medical equipment had been smashed and toppled. There was a strong scent of formaldehyde and other potent chemicals, 
powerful enough to make Oliver wish he still had his gas mask from his army days. The only sound was the rain pelting against the windows, with no sign of whoever was responsible for this disaster. With a steady hand, Oliver slowly swept the lantern back and forth as he meticulously advanced through the ward, glass and other debris loudly crunching under his leather shoes as he did so. Even though the chemical fumes were stinging his eyes, he fought the urge to blink. The ward was so dark, with so many places to hide that if something came hurtling towards him, the blink of an eye could literally mean the difference between life and death. Oliver was over halfway through the ward when his light fell upon something that finally gave him pause. It was a metal bed frame. The first one he had seen that wasn't overturned. It was draped in a black bedsheet, which itself seemed unusual for a medical facility, underneath which was a huddled figure. Oliver pointed his gun at it, but resisted the temptation to pull the trigger immediately. For all he knew, it was a patient hiding from whatever he had been sent in to kill, and he did not want innocent blood on his hands. Identify yourself, he whispered, fully ready to shoot it in an instant should it become hostile. The figure under the sheet raised its head slightly, but made no effort to pull the sheet back. It sat up very slowly under the sheet, revealing itself to be well over six feet tall. Identify yourself now, or I'll shoot. Oliver took a step back as he held his gun towards the figure, his arm trained on its head as Chamberlain had recommended. My name is Charlie, it replied timidly, speaking in the voice of a small child. Please, don't hurt me. Shit. Oliver thought to himself. He scrutinized the figure as meticulously as he could in the dim light and without getting any closer, and realized he couldn't actually tell if it was sitting on the edge of the bed or standing on it. If it was sitting on the bed, then it was bigger than he was. But if it was standing up on it, then it could easily have been a child. Hello there, Charlie. Nice to meet you. He said cordially. My name's Oliver. Would you mind uh, coming out from under that sheet so that we can talk face to face? I can't come out, it said with a fervent shake of its head. And why's that? Oliver asked, with a practiced paternal patience. You'll shoot me if you see what I look like, Charlie whimpered. Oliver let out a sigh and, against his better judgment, lowered his gun. Listen, Charlie, I'm not going to shoot you. How about you tell me what happened here? Can you do that? He asked. The figure nodded sullenly, but its posture remained every bit as despondent, suggesting to Oliver that his promise not to shoot it carried little weight. Ever since I was little, I would shake and fall down for no reason. I couldn't control it. It just happened. The doctor called it epilepsy, Charlie explained. Sometimes I would break things or wet myself. Mother used to say I would grow out of it, but it only got worse as I got bigger. I was an embarrassment and too much trouble. So father sent me away. Mother said it wasn't forever, just until I got better, but 
I don't think father ever wanted me back. It didn't matter anyway, because the doctors here weren't even trying to make me better. They'd strap me to the bed and stick me with needles. They said it was my medicine, but all it did was make me sick and sleepy. Then they'd stick wires to my head and electrocute me to make me shake and wet myself worse than I ever did before. Sometimes so much that I couldn't even remember who I was. And then that brain came in a jar, shouting made-up words so loud and he wouldn't stop talking and none of it made sense. He called for his surgeon and he was wearing a mask but not a doctor's mask. It was leather and it covered his whole head with a brass mouthpiece and goggles and it had long tubes feeding into it from a backpack. He took out a knife, not a scalpel, but a giant dirty knife, and started cutting. He just started cutting and cutting and cutting, and it hurt so much. He kept cutting no matter how much I begged him to stop, and I didn't understand why I wasn't dead. I still don't. Charlie began to weep softly his head hanging down limply as he drew the black bedsheet around him even tighter. Charlie, did you do this? Oliver asked, holding up the lantern and shining it around the desolated ward. Charlie hesitated, but eventually he shamefully nodded his head. Yes, he admitted quietly. They had me tied to the bed. They cut so much there wasn't enough left of me to hold down anymore. I sat up, and when I looked down at my own bloody and mangled body, I screamed. But when I saw my reflection in the window, I... I don't even know. I smashed the light bulbs so that I didn't have to look at myself anymore, and I smashed everything else until I was too tired. I laid down to cry until I was too tired for that, too. Oliver looked around the ward again, appraising the destruction. There was no way any child, no matter how mad with grief and rage, could have done all of that. He had to know what he was dealing with before he made any irreversible decisions. Charlie, listen. I need to see what they did to you. He whispered reassuringly as he could. Can I take this sheet off of you? Please? Do you promise you won't scream? Charlie whimpered. Oliver nodded. I promise, Charlie. And he meant it. He was a disciplined soldier and had seen a variety of mutilated bodies, both living and dead, during his deployment overseas. More importantly, he was a fairly decent father, and the last thing he wanted to do was upset a troubled child. Moving slowly, Oliver grabbed the top of the bedsheet and gently tugged it off. What he saw was a human nervous system suspended in midair. A bloating brain with its spinal cord dangling limply like a tail. The nerves seemed to move of their own accord and had been responsible for holding the bedsheet in the shape of a human body. The eyes remained intact as well, naked, bloodshot orbs with pupils dilated as far as they could go, leaving no visible iris. What was truly repugnant, though, 
was that every inch of nerve tissue was coated with some kind of black, fungoid growth, rhythmically expanding and contracting as if it were breathing. It was fuzzy and damp and wheezing, and the way it so greedily engrossed and permeated the brain with its mycelium made all of her think it was a parasite of some kind. Although, if it was what was keeping Charlie alive, then perhaps the term symbiote would be more appropriate. Crowley, you twisted bastard. Why would you do this? Oliver whispered in disbelief. I can never go back home now, can I? Charlie asked. The nerves where his throat should have been vibrating slightly as he spoke. Oliver sighed, setting the lantern down. He glanced around the upended board, his eyes settling on the rain pounding out upon a nearby window. No, son. I'm afraid not. Everyone in the asylum heard the gunshot. By the time Crow, Crowley, and Chamberlain had reached the ward's entrance, Oliver was already out. It's done, he reported solemnly, his gun still smoking in his hand. It's dead? Chamberlain asked hopefully. Shot in the head, like you said, right between the eyes. The bullet tore right through it and still had enough energy to break a window, like the thing had been made of smoke. Oliver reported, holstering his gun and taking out his pack of cigarettes. Chamberlain nodded toward Woodbeat, who pulled out a clockwork device that resembled a Geiger counter, who went in to confirm the kill himself. What about the body? Is it intact? Crowley demanded shrilly. Afraid not. The creature deteriorated into miasma the second the bullet made contact, which promptly evaporated. Oliver claimed as he lit his cigarette. What? Crowley demanded. How is that possible? Beats the hell out of me. I'm not a thaumatologist. You gents just brought me in to shoot the damn thing. And that's what I did. Oliver said nonchalantly. Woodbead stepped back out of the ward, holding his scanning device high, so that they could all see it. I performed a full sweep. There's no body, and I didn't get a single ping on the parathermometer. He reported. You calamitous, blundering ignoramus. Do you have any idea how valuable that body would have been to my research? Crowley screeched lividly as he rolled toward Oliver. Easy, Crowley, easy. Chamberlain shouted, as both he and Crow held him in place. Need I remind you, this entire incident was your fault to begin with. I brought Oliver in to clean up your mess. That's all I care about. If you want your test subjects in one piece, then you should take better care that they don't break loose to begin with. Crowley wrinkled his gray matter at Chamberlain, but said nothing. Mr. Mason, I apologize for my colleague's outburst. You did splendidly. Chamberlain congratulated him. He reached into his breast pocket and pulled a neatly folded wad of cash. Here's a little something for your trouble. And your silence. Crow added. Yes, Erasmus, obviously. No need to threaten the poor man after what he's just been through. Chamberlain rolled his eyes. Honestly, of the three of us, sometimes I think I'm the only one who's capable of being affable. You're free to go, Mr. Mason. No sense in keeping you around these ingrates any longer. And thank you again. Sincerely. Who knows what else that thing might have gotten up to if we had let it run amok. Oliver nodded without a word, 
pocketing the cash without counting it, as the exact sum hardly mattered to him. Woodbead escorted him back to the main entryway, helped him into his hat and coat, cordially waved him farewell as he drove off. As he drove over the bridge, he saw the asylum lights turning back on in his rearview mirror. A view which was quickly obscured, however, by a figure under a black bedsheet slowly rising from its hiding place between the seats. Thank you, Charlie said softly. Don't mention it, kid, Oliver said, turning his eyes back toward the road. The rain was easing up. The road was still slippery. I'm just glad you got the right car. And that the range on that parathermometer was crap. Where are you going to take me? Charlie asked. Up north, to a place called Dreadford. I got an old army buddy who works there. Oliver replied. It's a long drive. And it won't help my wife's suspicions that I'm having an affair. But it's the only place I know to take you. I won't lie. You're not going to have a normal childhood there. But you'll be better off than you would be with Crowley. Charlie nodded somberly, lowering his head but saying nothing. Oliver glanced up into his rearview mirror at the forlorn figure and decided that there was no need to let their many hours together in that car pass in uncomfortable silence. Hey, Charlie. Do you want to hear about the time I shot a Nazi warlock? I hope you enjoyed From Madness Born, as written by the Vespers Bell, and performed by Nick Goroff, Kyle Stroud, Steve Gray, Jeff Sturdivant, and Justin Reynolds. You can hear more of these wonderful performers right here on our very own network. The Vespers Bell is a creepypasta author who prefers to remain pseudonymous for completely unsuspicious and non-nefarious reasons. After honing a lifelong interest in creative writing through multiple endeavors, most notably the SCP Wiki, the Vespers Bell has joined the Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's writing team for the opportunity to both expand and diversify their body of work, as well as reach new and wider audiences. On to the shows! Longtime resident and powerhouse, Otis Jiry has his very own show here on our network, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, which you can hear every Sunday night. And please be sure to check out what else we offer. We have Fear from the Heartland, featuring horror stories brought to you from the Heartland, airing Wednesdays. Eric Peabody's Horror Hill is a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. We hope you check him out. And Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some southern, down-home horror. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight, and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012, and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week 
when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Ha 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 